Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good morning, afternoon, or evening. It can be any of those three things, can't it? We're back with another episode of Yes Chef. Sat in the lovely Devonshire Square. It's like a, a giant butterfly type with no bloody butterflies in. Uh, but yeah, we're here to talk all things Indian food with Mr. Vivek Singh. Enjoy. How have you, um, how's the, the start of the year been for you then? Um, really interesting 2018, I have to say. Um, in relation, I think everything everything looks positive after that. <laughs> Okay. Uh, it's been a good start. I can't yeah. complain, you know, given, given how much uncertainty there is and how much people are worried about things they shouldn't worry about and mm. shouldn't necessarily have to worry about. Um, it's been a good start, you know, I think, and, and just generally, uh, I think people are getting bored of the uncertainty too. So yeah. they're saying, you know, they've got to live their lives and they've it got to do It becomes normal, stuff. doesn't it? Yeah. They, when you hear the negativity every day, it kind of just becomes, yeah, that's normal now. <laughs> and then we just, yeah, that's true. Be that's happy. true. You know, you say that, you say that, and, you know, I, think about it. Um, I was speaking to somebody in Oxford earlier on in the year and they said, um, oh, well, this isn't good for us. You know, whatever's happening is not good. I mean, young people, you know, 10 of my most productive years of um, my working life are going to be compromised because of decisions that, you know, people have taken. And he's quite sort of animated and quite um, annoyed by it. Mm. And I kind of just stopped and thought back and I said, that's the last 10 years of my working life, actually, in the city. Um, has been in the middle of the worst recession known to our generation of people. Um, it's just, you know, it's everyday thing. If you don't sit and sit back and think about it, don't let it hold you back. Um, in the last 10 years, uh, through all of this stuff, we managed to open well, three or four restaurants. So not bad. So not too bad, is it? <laughs> not too bad. for good. And you've currently got a lot of fluorescent paint outside of your restaurant at the moment. Yeah, that's right. It's that's a lot right. of fun. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, it's the holy in the city pour that we put out. I mean, this is our fifth year running yeah. it. Yeah. I could, you know, five years ago, I would never have imagined that, that it would be as successful as it has been. It's just one of those things that, you know, um, I mean, restaurants are more than about just food and drink. Um, I mean, there is such a great opportunity to um, tell stories and share and bring people new experiences in ways that, you know, you couldn't have thought a few years ago. I've been incredibly lucky. We have this uh, amazing space outside, um, you know, rather sheltered from uh, from the elements. Um, you know, and that's quite important because last year when we had the Holy in the City pod, um, uh, the beast uh, from the east paid a visit, <laughs> and we still had it. So, yeah. yeah. So that, you know, it's amazing. It's this um, 
a brilliant, vibrant, colorful festival um, celebration of colors. Um, that we, I'm, I'm, I'm an absolute huge fan of this festival. Of, you know, so, of, do you get involved yourself? Are you, are you covered in paint? Or yeah, have you yeah, kind yeah. Of, no, I yeah? do that. I do that. Yeah, I'd be I, bad I, if we did. Right? I've probably done that four times this year. You know, um, Fine, I, Okay, I, yeah, yeah, brilliant, great fun. Yeah, it does look it. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It is. You know. So you mentioned you were in Oxford. So you you opened your place in Oxford, didn't you? Last yeah, year? yeah, about eighteen months now. Yeah. So what's What's been the difference of because opening in the city and opening more in the city and expanding in London's fine, but going to open in Oxford, for instance, I mean, why did you choose there? I mean, Oxford more presented itself. I think it's, it was more a case of Oxford choosing us than us choosing Oxford. But I mean, many ways I can see why it appealed to us. It worked because, um, I mean, I like to think of our restaurants as pretty world facing restaurants. You know, people from all over the world are looking at our websites, looking at our menus. Um, I'm wanting to come and visit. It's not just for Indians. It's not just for yeah, people exactly. in London. Yeah. It has this sort of, you know, slight universal appeal, appeal. universal appeal about it. And I, I kind of think that is a commonality with Oxford in many ways. People from all over the world are looking at Oxford and, you know, coming and visiting or studying or living or whatever that might be. So there was a commonality in there. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful uh, city town, whatever you will call it, you know, to, to be at. And it's got a lot of our, I mean, a lot of uh, Oxford residents, you know, come and visit our restaurants here anyway. So, so there was um, that. But I mean, I still tell you the amount of, um, I mean, it's been a one hell of a learning curve because um, when you work in London and you have worked all your, you know, most of your time in this country in London, I think you take so many things for granted. You know, the body heat, the, the intensity, the the, the energy, the just so. Do you, know, you mean traffic. things things slow down a little oh, bit? Oh, yes, because that's yes, what yeah. I find a lot. That's exactly what it is, and yeah. it becomes almost comical in a way. Oh, I mean, it just feels like the city's shut. You know, for mm. I mean, on a on a Friday morning, I might go there and think, get out of the train and walk to the restaurant. And think, well, is everything all right? It's like because a Sunday it feels, here. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like a Sunday in Westminster. I tell you, that's crazy. <laughs> Do you, do you do you like that? Do you, do you when you go there? Do you go? Oh, it's a different way of life, isn't it? It's the it's, it's the oh, feel. It's, it's a completely different feel. Um, I mean, you know, whether you like it and you know, from a, depending on what um, what hat you're wearing, I think you, you may like it as a business. You may not like it as much. You would like you much rather like the energy and the um, you know the the activity that uh, one often finds themselves inundated with in London. Um, you would want that for a business, but I you know I. It's just the reality of, of of Oxford, and you're not looking to change that, and you shouldn't. You you need to just go and embrace Oxford or 100%. whatever that town or city might be for what it is. Mm. You know. Now, should we get into the kind of the stories um, uh-huh. that we want to find out? We want to talk to you about what might be some of your earliest food memories <laughs> from from when you were from when you were a kid. Right. So, um, I mean, you know, earliest food memories. Um, I mean, there are a few. One is this sort of never-ending uh, cooking that was going on in our house um, when we were, we, we were so I must have been five or six or whatever. I, I just have this memory of my mother constantly being, constantly uh, being at the stoves, constantly cooking. I mean, she used to cook three, if not four meals a day for five of us. You know, each meal would have three, four, maybe five different things. And pretty much everything had to be cooked from scratch. Uh, pretty much shopping happened every day. 
if she wasn't going out and buying vegetables and fish or whatever, uh, there were people coming uh, home and, you know, hawkers walking around selling things at your doorstep. Uh, but they was constantly buying, selling, you know, or, or, the, or the security guard or whatever, you know. The, the guard would kind of drive, to, uh, not drive, but, you know, cycle to the nearest uh, uh, market sort of three kilometers out and bring a whole sack of potatoes and, you know, on the back of his cycle. Um, so there was constantly cooking. There was always cooking going on. Um, and often, you know, and this, this would happen on, on coal um, uh, stoves. So this is before gas I'm talking about. And this is certainly before refrigeration in my household. You know, We got our first refrigerator in 1979. I must have been eight years old. Um, was, that, was that a big day? It was a big thing, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, not for my dad. He thought, oh, what's the point of just... Uh, holding stale food for another, <laughs> you know, because, it's a good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you think about it. <laughs> you know, he, he was much. He would much prefer um, sort of you know fresh food being cooked uh, every single meal. But you know, he wasn't the, doing the cooking. He wasn't doing the cooking <laughs> right, exactly. He wasn't mind. doing the cooking. So that was you know that's certainly one of the earliest memories um, of so much cooking going on in the household. Mm, mm. That sounds awesome. When, Wide like, range of recipes as well. <laughs> I want that. I wish I had that at my house. Well, like four <laughs> different meals a day. Gosh, beautiful. Yeah. Then, so, so about so Cindy to go up? So I, I was growing up in a very, very small um, colliery uh, about 200 kilometers west of Calcutta. So um, in Bengal. So, you know, I have a very strong um, Bengali influence on my cooking. Um, I spent about 13 years of my early life there. Um in Bengal and these were coal mines my dad used to be a mining engineer he used to run a colliery so um, so there were about 200 families uh, but you know ours was the kind of uh, in the center of the uh, thing and there was a big there was a big playground um, in front of our house um, and, and this is where all the events would happen everything would happen so you know every festival every celebration whether it was 26th of January, the Republic Day holiday or uh, Holi or Diwali or um, anything, anything that happened had to happen in front of a house and there'd be 200 families, stroke people uh, descend upon your house. And so, you know, there was a lot of cooking and there was a lot of preparation always on. Something or the other was always on. That sounds like chaos. <laughs> Were you allowed to help? Were you, did, you, did your mum make you help? Um, and all that stuff? And actually, no. I, mean, I don't know why, but, you know, with me growing up, I mean, she had some help, very little. Um, I mean, most of it was either, you know, was done by her. She was the one who was pulling it all, you know, kind of. And, and when very big events happened, you know, I think uh, women from the neighborhood would come and they would all sit sit down together, sing songs and, you know, probably fill samosas and uh, and make tons of puris and, you know, things like that. So they would, it, it would kind of turn into a potluck, you know, people would either bring big pots of um, dishes with them just as a contribution or, or, or sit down in your house and, you know, help help make uh, lots of things. So, yeah, there was a lot of um, community stuff going on. There. That's crazy. I mean, as a kid, that, that just seems really normal to you. Like, everything's just, like, food-orientated, and that's part of being involved in that community, right? Oh, yeah, completely. You know, you think, um, what did people have in a remote coal mining community, uh, probably 10 kilometers from the nearest market, you know, perhaps six, seven kilometers from the nearest um, um, cinema hall or whatever, I mean, this is before television, right? I'm not talking, you know, mainstream television hadn't quite made its... Um, before fridges. <laughs> before fridges, right? So, you know, you think about um, entertainment or, um, you know, what do you do? What, what, what do people do? 
and, and food was a great way of um, you know bringing people together. Um, there, it was just such a main uh, mainstream um, activity that kind of just brought people together in ways like we can only dream of these days. Can mm. Mm. I think it'd be better. I think, think? Be, I think I think it'd be better. It's like whenever I go home and I sit with my little brothers and there's five five little kids just staring at mobile phones. <laughs> and like, if, if you take them away, if you take them away, yeah, like, you just play out when you were a kid, didn't you? You Correct. know, Correct. and then eating was a big part because the only time you'd come in, sit down, and be made to sit at the table. Yeah, yeah. I've never eaten a dinner on my bloody. But then you'd you'd eat your food as fast as you could just so you could get back outside. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. And you would you know you would eat what was what was put in front of you. You weren't really given options, were you? I mean, there wasn't you know it wasn't like oh you know what are you having and and I'm. Fast forward to now, I mean, breakfast in my household, only at the weekends, of course, but, you know, breakfast in my household now is like an a la carte menu. I'm going to have waffles, I'm going to have this, I'm going to have that, um, I'm going to have avocados. You know, it's just everybody, four people, they're all having different things. I mean, it wasn't like that when we were growing up. No. <laughs> and get, I think much the better for it. You, <laughs> you just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're not going to waste it. You know, Everything on your plate has to finish, to be finished, yeah. Can you remember some particular dishes that your mum cooked that you're still kind of in your head, kind of the smells, the tastes, the colours? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the one the one thing that she would cook uh, lots of, and I can now understand why, you know, I, I totally get it. Um, every time we had visitors at short notice, and we had lots, we had lots of visitors. At Come short and see notice, the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, we would, you know, she'd, she'd have cooked pretty much, you know, she'd cooked breakfast and finished off, you know, had a shower, whatever, cooked her lunch, my dad would have come, had his lunch, and, you know, he's gone for his siesta, an hour-long nap that he used to have in the afternoon before he headed off to the office again. Uh, and then the doorbell would ring and, you know, somebody... And often there'd be people who'd been, you know, who from either his village or whatever. They've traveled three days to come. They have... This is before telephones and before, uh, you know, and they don't even bother to send you a telegram or a letter saying, we're visiting. They just show up and there's three people. Um, or four people, and you know she's just wiped clean everything, and you know it's it's done for the afternoon kind of thing. And three people have turned up. My dad would sort of very rarely be woken from his siesta. He'll come out, you know, then say his niceties, hellos, and whatever pleasantries exchanged. Um, they'd be given tea. They'd be given some sweets because that's what you do. You always carry sweets in an Indian household, and you always have some savouries that you just put out in front of people, and that's really low effort. Um, that goes out. And then um, after 20 minutes or so, he'd just say, well, and have you guys eaten? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> and then oh, she, well. he would just look at her and, you know, and she would go there. She'd go start all over again. She'd make puris. And puris are these sort of puffed round uh, deep fried bread. Um, probably it's a simple dough, um, a slight bit of shortening and some plain flour or chapati flour, whatever it is. A bit of salt, a bit of... Um, uh, carom seed or black onion seed, uh, so slightly savory. And so these puris, they they they're quite quick to cook, I mean, much quicker than a chapati or a paratha because that's a lot more labor intensive. And so, so she would pretty much fry mountains of puris and and put it out with the whatever vegetables she'd had, and she'd you know manage to rustle up quickly. So puris are a mainstay of my sort of early food memory. And then she would make this amazing tomato, sweet tomato and raisin chutney, which only when I grew up, I realized it wasn't um, from her family. It was more something she'd picked up from her neighbors who happened to be Bengalis. Uh, so the Bengali tomato and raisin chutney is quite a thing. 
And as kids, we would sort of just take this sort of jammy chutney, stuff it inside the deep fried bread and run around, <laughs> fist food like little else, you know. All the way down your elbows. <laughs> so people always visiting your house, kind of the food being a major, major part of it. Your relationship with food, was it ever... I want this to be a career kind of thing. Or was it just something that was just day to day? Um, no, it was. It was wasn't um, ever uh, a career option. I, I, you know, just didn't have that thinking. I don't think uh, young boys sort of growing up in the age that I was growing up, late seventies, early eighties, or throughout the nineties. Uh, I don't think in India uh, becoming a chef was ever a serious career option. Um, I mean, you know, now, of course, things are different. There are tons of role models. There's lots of chefs on television. Food actually rules television <laughs> in terms of entertainment. Um, yeah, more kids. I, I know more kids growing up in India now that watch the Australian MasterChef than anything else, you know. So um, it's just a, it's a different world we live in now, but it wasn't like that when we were growing up. So it never was a career option. But I was, I, I, no, I, don't, I can't even say hand on heart that I used to cook a lot or used to help my mum because, again, you know, we didn't have had the opportunity. She never had the expectation. Um, it was just not the normal thing to do. Um, so, you know, boys did boys. Boys being boys, they did what boys do, run around, you know, play football, uh, cricket, whatever, you know, go um, to places you shouldn't go on a cycle, you know, just, just whatever. Um, but we never really got stuck into the kitchen. We never really, it wasn't expected. We weren't doing it. Uh, and there weren't many role models. Um, but the one thing I can say is that I was always a pretty enthusiastic consumer. So, you know, I... That's <laughs> That's a great way of putting it, yeah. I think we that all That is are. the best way. Yeah, yeah. Greed, was, you know, greedy bugger. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Thought, yeah. One hell of a greedy bugger. <laughs> so, you know, it was just... It, it's just I, I would do anything for, um, for a good meal, for a you know, sort of uh, meal out or whatever. Um, so, you know, it, one of the things that I always say and I, I remember very vividly was it was a small community, 200 people, whatever. But in the wedding season, they'd often you'd find yourself with more invitations than you could attend. Um, and and often my dad would say, well, no, look, you know, I, I'm traveling on work or I have this meeting and I can't do this wedding or whatever. We'll have to just send a regret or whatever. Or, or what he'd do is he'd sort of, you know, he'd, he'd send a money order. <laughs> so um, to the, you know, to the family and saying, well, with best wishes from the Sings, you know, it's a five rupee, whatever, you know, um, money order that would go out. And so often I'd find, you know, if he wasn't going somewhere, he couldn't make it or he wasn't, you know, or my mother had to attend something else. And um, so if it was a local wedding, I'd often say to them, no, don't worry, you know, just give me the envelope. I'll go, you know, I'll go and attend. Yeah, I'll go. That's <laughs> you know, amazing. Because Indian weddings are massive. They always have been. I mean, all you have to do is you have to just rock up. There's about a thousand people being fed. Uh, in some sort of a, a, a marquee or a tent somewhere, just makeshift. Um, I mean, but but earlier on in, in Bengal, I mean, the Bengalis are absolutely mad when it comes to hospitality and feeding people, literally force feed. <laughs> if you stop to yawn in the middle of a meal, they just put a dozen rasagolas in your mouth, you know. Um, but I mean, it's very it's very counterintuitive. You know, when you when you when you invite sort of twelve hundred people and you kind of paying for the food and you, what, what do you want you want people to just eat well but you're not really force feeding people that doesn't happen in Bengal so you know if they need to mark you so people mark people you know so the hosts will mark people this is important this one is the 
the, the groom's uh, brother-in-law or the groom's father or this, that and the other. So people will have a hierarchy of guests and, you know, often if you happen to be important enough or whatever or close enough to the to the inner circle, you'll get marked and then they will be feeding you like there is no tomorrow. Oh, that's amazing. One of my favorite things to eat is uh, is a prawn malai curry, a, a king prawns in a uh, coconut and cardamom curry. I have it on the menu uh, here, I think. Uh, and, in, you know, I have it in on various sort of menus from time to time, but I never keep it on the menu all the time because, you know. But it's one of my earliest childhood memories, um, going to a Bengali wedding and having prawns uh, for the first time. It just stayed with me. It has stayed with me. Yeah. It's never, never forgotten. Never forgotten it. I want to go to an Indian wedding because it's the opposite to English. <laughs> Should we go? Should we go? You know, it's, it's the opposite. I went to a wedding last year and it was just, you get, they were obviously, you know, it's an expensive job getting married in this country, I think. And and in London, just outside London. They didn't feed me all day. That's why English people just get so drunk at weddings. Because they get there, they get, yeah. you know, cheese on a stick. Yeah. And then you have six pints. And then it's like, <laughs> when do we get fed? And uh, I sat next to, no offence, Kim, because Kim's vegetarian. <laughs> sat next to producer's a veggie. Sat next to a vegetarian. And I'd there, and I'd have this pulled pork and all that. It was all right. And then the poor bugger got brought a pita bread in tinfoil <laughs> with some vegetables and a bit of feta in it. Right, if my mate listens to this, it's going Almost to kill an me. apology, yeah. It's going to kill me, my mate. I'm sorry, pal. I'm sorry. But the veggie moaned. But it's one of those things where yeah. English things are always so drunk, aren't they? <laughs> because there's nothing to eat. You know what I mean? You need to be fed proper. Yeah. True, yeah. true. Very true. So you, you've always had a strong interest in food. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because of, you know, maybe surrounded by great people and... It kind of it's all it's all fun. Well, what do you think sparked the kind of interest into wanting to become a chef? Yeah, um, so I you know I um, growing up in um, in in eastern part of the country and then um, going to um, so finished school in in again in another eastern part of the country, uh, small towns, uh, not a lot of opportunity, not a lot of exposure. So the 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 obvious career choices were the same as everybody else. You know, either you got into engineering if you were really competitive and really good academically, or medicine. Or if you didn't do either of those things, then you got into defense. And if you weren't good enough, or sporty enough, or strong enough, or whatever, um, then you were looking for other things. And you know, I just happened to um, pretty much sort of sleepwalk into a hotel school because I didn't clear any of those other things. You know, I came across somebody who um, um, who just got into hotel school and. They were really young. Ho. They were, you know, they were just, they seemed like they were having a great time in college. So I asked them what it was about. What what did they do? And so the way um, she, maybe this is my sister's friend, uh, she wrote me a six-page letter. And, you know, the way she described it, it sounded like a three-year-long picnic. Because, you know, there were no no notes to make, no classes, no exams to take. It you seemed were just like there for the prawns again. I was you? just fantastic. <laughs> Sound like a great, great opportunity. Then said they were, they'd been to an industrial uh, exposure in, in a five-star hotel and uh, happened to end up in a kitchen. And uh, they were so kind of, you know, they were just having whole papayas all the time and, you know, lots of mangoes. And well, it sounded like the place to be <laughs> so i kind of slept you know sleepwalked into hotel school and came out of hotel school got i mean at the time i um, i kind of you know i don't take it that seriously but it was the most amazing uh, hotel job one could have found i i got picked up by the best hotel group the best job uh, at the time first day of campus interviews i was done there was nothing else to do 
Um, so I, you know, I, I joined the Oberoi's and I was part of the senior kitchen training program. And I did three years of kitchen training and, you know, kind of you become a chef and you, you get a kitchen of your own. And um, I don't think quite, you know, I was as uh, passionate about food and cooking and wanting to make a difference um, uh, up to that point. And it was only after I completed my training and I, um, um, I just chanced upon uh, Marco Pierre White's White Heat. Uh, I got given the copy of that book for coming second, you know, on something, you know. <laughs> and it, I just reading that book changed my life. I just completely changed the way I thought of chefing and and working in kitchens and the, you know, the responsibility you could have if you really wanted it, um, you know, to actually tell your story, to tell, you know, to to give so much joy, bring so much. Um, um, to create so many memories for so many people if you did it right and you got it right. So I, I kind of decided that I didn't want to pursue the, the, the conventional career path of uh, a hotel chef. I, you know, go on and become a glorified clerk, you know, <laughs> ordering um, ingredients and, you know, organizing things, but never really cooking at the stove. I realized that I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to cook and cook for a long time because I enjoyed it and I wanted to do more and more of that and do new things and and so, um, yeah, there I was. I think this was 1995. Yeah, 1996, something like that. Yeah. So what was like that, that first job in a kitchen? Was that daunting? Was it terrifying? Was it super exciting? Um, yeah, it was super exciting. And, and you know, it's, um, I started off, my first stint in the kitchen was uh, running the night shift for a flight service. Uh, I was, you know, 5,000 meals a day uh, for British Airways and Gulf Air and whatever in the Oberoi flight services in, in Mumbai. And I did that for uh, about seven or eight months on the understanding that I was moving to a five-star hotel after that and wanted to go and run the kitchen. I run, a, run an Indian kitchen there. I didn't want, you know... Um, anything to do with all the other kitchens and 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 you know life has its ways of the more you say i don't want to do this and i don't want to do that <laughs> it makes you do the things that you don't want to do so um because i said i always wanted to work only indian kitchen and didn't want to do anything else with you know scale or volume or something they said look you want to go to the flight kitchens you want to do this uh, and, and on the other end of that you will get your hotel kitchens or whatever so i did that um went in there and the chef asked me well so what kitchen do you want to work in and I said, oh, I'm here for the Indian speciality restaurant. He says, isn't everybody? Yeah. <laughs> You're not getting that. <laughs> so, you know, he put me through all the other kitchens, you know, banqueting, Thai, rotisserie, French, coffee shop, uh, night shifts, everything um, for a year before he said, um, I think you've earned your stripes. You know, you can go and run your uh, Indian kitchen. So I went in and did that. I was great fun I and mean, great excitement uh, doing it, but also... Uh, just doing something well and you know being acknowledged for it i think i think uh in a lot of things that we end up doing in life flattery has a role to play it has, can be a positive thing so because i got encouraged at the right times by the right people or you know so just notice generally saying look you've got something you know you should carry on and you know and so that's that's where i ended up do you feel that now with people coming into your kitchen, you take yeah. inspiration in that as well. So like the encouragement, the kind of young people coming in. Oh, yeah. Because you started very young. Yeah. You know, and you're learning. And like you're saying, looking at learning all them different cuisines. You didn't mm. want to. You no. want to do the best. I think but most kids, because of TV, want to do exactly. Michelin star straight away. Exactly. You need or, a graft. Or, yeah, no, you need the graft. Without the graft, without the basics, you don't get very far. And that's the thing. There aren't any shortcuts to anywhere good. You know, there aren't any shortcuts to anywhere nice either. And you just got to. So for most people who think, you know, I, I want to get into 
you know, food or chefing uh, because, uh, you know, I want to be on television. I, I think it's, you you got to get into a kitchen if you love food and cooking. If you don't enjoy that, don't put yourself through this uh, because it's a, it's a it's a journey. It isn't a one-day process. And then reading Michael Pierre White's book, what was it about that book that made you just go? Because so many people have said to us about Michael Pierre White. Yeah. Back in the day, in the 90s, he was the first, he was a rock star of cooking. Oh, completely. A complete, and rock star chef. I mean, that's the word. So many people use it. Um, I think what he did was, it was the, uh, the attitude that he kind of conveyed, the, um, the passion that he conveyed through the books and his quotes, you know. Um, for the first time, I don't think I had ever come across uh, a viewpoint contrary to how we were brought up in hotel schools. You know, in hotel schools, the mantra is the guest is always right. Doesn't matter what. You know, the guest is always right. And he didn't, like, he didn't say that, <laughs> did he? <laughs> no, no. What he said was something along the lines of, uh, if I came to your house an hour late for dinner and then criticize your wife's haircut, you know, <laughs> how would you feel? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that rang a bell somewhere. And this is like, uh, you know, three courses in 45 minutes, you know, who do you, th- what do you think I do? Fucking pull rabbits out of a hat. You know, I think yeah. those, those were the things, you know, quite, as a young chef, you would experience and you would experience, you think, you know, you want to do it nicely. You want to do things nice. Uh, you're trying to do the best you can, but I think it's a two-way process. Sometimes if your guests or your customers aren't quite getting that and they want everything like that, it's just, uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't allow you the, the space to do something well. And I think I could sense that and that frustration probably, oh, that is, is aggro from there, um, really resonated. Brilliant. Have you met him since and told him? Uh, no. Never met him? No, I'm not. We're, we're Facebook friends. Um, <laughs> I've never met him in person. I've, I've never met Marco in person. And a lot of people say to me, I mean, it's actually, you know, quite all right, because very often you shouldn't meet your idols like that. It's probably just leave it. This is the way it's meant to be. Yeah. But one day, you know, who knows? I mean, he's got a restaurant right behind us. Actually. Well, let's bring him out. <laughs> so then, tonight, Vivek, Marco. Imagine that. I would actually kick the door down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So when did you find the confidence in your own cooking? Was um, it was there something that kind of presented itself? You were like, yes, this is it. Um, when did I find the confidence in my own cooking? I um, see. I, I I've told you about you know how badly I wanted to cook Indian food and you know at a very high level and run restaurants of my own and some Indian restaurant in in five star hotels and um, and I think I kind of. Um, went around in circles about four or five years. It took me to actually get to the kitchen I really liked and, and, and worked in. But in less than two years, I was bored because, you know, I, I just thought, well, this is great, but you can't carry on cooking the 200 recipes that were decreed 500 years ago by somebody and just carry on doing the same thing because there wasn't enough innovation or experimentation or pushing boundaries, certainly not in the environment that I was cooking at. So um, I thought there's so much more that could be could have been done. And I wasn't, I mean, why weren't people thinking of it? And why weren't more people doing it? And so I could sense an opportunity and I wanted to do it. But, you know, I, a couple of years on, I was getting really restless and bored. Um, and I think that the, um, the hotel group at the time thought that maybe I was just sort of, you know, I was uh, probably getting restless. So they thought probably a change of scenery would be nice. So I was moved to a really nice hotel in, uh, in Jaipur, it was uh, um, 
it was the best hotel in India at the time um, to to work at. It was way ahead of its time, a boutique luxury hotel, seventy uh, two rooms only. Um, it was Tatler's best hotel in the world in two thousand. I mean, it was just the amazing, amazing um, setting. But I went there, and I, um, you know, I could see we had access to the most brilliant produce from anywhere in the world. You know, you could have had. Um, and uh, none of that, none of this fancy, really good quality produce was being used in the Indian kitchens because it was always, you know, oh, Indian food is just about curry, is it not? You know, why, why bother? And I'd say, well, you know, we have this access, and we we found that you know almost eighty percent of the guests who were coming in were having and ordering Indian food, but we weren't using the best ingredients, we weren't using anything, you know, kind of you know, any innovation, any creativity. So I said, well, look, this is an opportunity to do something new. Um, and uh, the the usual response was that oh, look you know we're in the business of running hotels not really reinventing Indian cuisine so um, no we love you we like you but you know what it's not needed um, and so yeah that was that and then you know I had the opportunity to open the Cinnamon Club in London um, which was a blank canvas it was a brilliant opportunity you could do anything you wanted so you actually didn't have the opportunity to cook with the produce that you had access to in that in that hotel correct. Oh, I must be so frustrating. <laughs> correct, correct. So there you go. Um, that's how the um, the idea of Cinnamon Club came about. Um, ah, so great produce, um, you know, good spicing and Indian techniques and whatever else, and then really good quality produce. And with that, Cinnamon Club was born in two thousand one. So why why the move? So it's a massive move from there to London. Yeah. So how did that come about? If you like, was it through a friend? Was it through yeah, I met people. Um, yeah, I met you know, I met I met um, some 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 people who uh, were attending a wedding in in Rajulas in Jaipur, and um, uh, they had a great time, and you know, they were completely sort of taken aback by that, and they had a friend who was you know looking to open a restaurant, and you know, so one thing led to another, and. Um, and so happened that my landlord, uh, current landlord at uh, the cinema club, um, he had been uh, on a holiday in Rajvillas uh, the same year. Uh, year to before your hotel. The open. Yeah, to the hotel. He'd stayed there. He'd had a great time. So one thing led to another. It was just meant to be. It was serendipity at its best. You know. So were you not like did. cooking those dishes <laughs> that you wanted to cook on the side? Just taste this. <laughs> not, not quite, no. But he you know, he'd had such a great time um, uh, out there. Uh, he had really fond memories. And so when... Um, uh, it came up in a conversation that, you know, I was coming from Rajulas. That's the thing. That's the restaurant we must have. So, um, yeah, and there we are. Um, so just by kind of uh, allowing ourselves the elbow room to look beyond authentic and not just be restricted by what, you know, somebody, someone had decreed 200 years ago, um, just by kind of creating a bit more elbow room um, and giving ourselves the freedom to, Try something new and innovate. Um, we, you know, it was a beautiful thing that was born. Seems like you you search for that creativity throughout the career. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So yeah. like every 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 opportunity you've, you've had, it's like, well, I want to do more. I want to do more. Mm. I want to do more. Mm. When you got your first place, was it everything you thought? Do you know what I mean? Was it? Am I allowed that creativity? Yeah, correct. You know, it was. Uh, it was more importantly, it was. Um, um, it was an opportunity to express in a way that probably I hadn't had before, um, before that, uh, because, you know, Cinema Club was, um, conceived to be an Indian restaurant that would change people's perception of Indian food in this country. And not because, you know, not because, um, Indian restaurants weren't, um, 
I loved before that. You know, there was a phenomenal appetite, um, affection for Indian food, you know, in this country and has been for several years. So it wasn't like Cinema Club was, you know, trying to get something that wasn't existing. It was just an opportunity to kind of change because, you know, it was also about making a statement of uh, challenging the status quo. You know, the the expectation that people had from an Indian restaurant probably pre-Cinnamon Club was that, you know, it would be sitar music playing, dark dingy, you know, sort of um, flock wallpaper and, and, and menus that never changed in, you know, and they had they had to have 110 you know dishes on them and things like that and the cinema club was about all challenging all of those preconceived notions of indian food and indian dining in this country i mean there wasn't an indian dining culture per se it was you know eating out going out for a curry or what you what you will but it you know it never really was taken as seriously as it is now and now i mean you know you look at you look at the journey that indian food has come in this country it's just phenomenal to see that, you know, good ingredients, seasonal cooking, freshness of spices, smaller menus that actually tell the story, more regional um, um, sort of, you know, expression. These are things that we now take for granted. It didn't exist in 2001 or before that. It really didn't. I think, you know, somewhere down the line, people were um, kind of just, you know, um, I, I think there was a mantra that, you know, that if it ain't broken, let's not fix it. Um it's just fine, you know, um, let's not push the boundaries. And I think we challenge that and that, and I think much better for it now. Amazing. Because I don't think many people realized there was other regions that are different cuisines. Yeah. Other than Punjabi and Bengali or, you know, whatever that, you know, yeah, you're right. Tell my dad, my dad's the exact same every time. He's been getting the same curry since 1984. (laughs) It's the same thing every time. People do that, don't they? It does, yeah. It's like when you go, you know, go to any place, you have your your set one and you just don't want to take the risk. Yeah. I don't want to have another change. You don't want to be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. But from a chef's point of view, I mean, you know, you you think everybody has that. Everybody. There is uh, comfort and familiarity and there's no denying that. And, you know, everybody has a favorite place, a favorite curry, a favorite dish, you know, favorite restaurant. I mean, I think there is a, there is a place for that. There is no denying that. However, I do feel that, you know, if you keep the same menus, no matter how, all the same dishes, no matter how great they are, you know, if it comes to a point where people do not even open the, the menu and they're just busy chatting amongst, you know, amongst themselves and uh, when the waiter comes up and you know, <laughs> says, you know, uh, uh, I'll have a Rogan Josh, you know, and, and then the, the guest says, well, I'll make that too, you know. And they haven't even opened the menu. I think that there is a breakdown in communication. There is a breakdown in engagement. I think the chefs of the kitchen or whatever that is, you know, they've stopped speaking to their customers and uh, stopped engaging and stopped encouraging people into trying new things. Now, the only way that engagement comes back is when the waiter says, I'm really sorry, sir, but there is no Rogan Josh. Have you not looked at the menu? It's like, what do you mean you don't have Rogan Josh? (laughs) (laughs) But but last time I came, it was there. Yes, sir. It was last time, say three weeks ago, the menu's changed. What do you mean? Menu's changed in three weeks? Yes, it has changed indeed, sir. Why don't you you take a look, see if you like something else? And I think it's a huge upheaval to ask people to do that if they're not used to doing that and never have been used to doing that for decades. I think it's a big inertia to overcome, um, but it's worth it. And when they did, when you did open in 2001, mm-hmm. there was probably, there was definitely still that. Oh yeah. Was, was it hard, hard for the first year to do that? Or did, was people just coming and like trying and opening their eyes? Um, no, I think people came in, but you know, came in, 
to try because this was something new and this was something you know that they hadn't experienced before but i think it did still come with a lot of baggage i you know it people would say well you know we british don't really expect much from indian food why are you trying so hard why is this fuss what is this fuss about so you think well you know <laughs> well and then um, indian people say well you know this is too expensive this isn't you know this is for the western palate or the you know we don't need this who's this food for you know it's not for indians it's not for europeans who is it for um and you think oh well you know <laughs> well you're here now so you may as well just try it you don't like it you won't come back and that's fine by us but you know so the fact that we just stayed put and you know get up you know kept our head down and carried on eventually i think it's always a numbers game if more people are have a positive experience uh, and decide to come back or advocate your uh, product um then you'll have a viable business and if more people go away unhappy and you know whatever uh, disappointed then you don't have a business you've got to you've also not got, not stubborn's not the word but you've got to do what you what to do correct you know? if you don't do that you, you have no one every time it's going to be like you know you do three different regions two different courses every you know what i mean it's like yeah. you've got to be stubborn and stick to your guns sometimes. absolutely you have to you have to the conviction is almost as important as anything else in this case yeah mm-hmm. and then you decided to open another restaurant <laughs> yeah that's right so how how was how was that because it's insane to open a restaurant it's so busy right especially where where your restaurants are Yeah. So how did this opportunity come about to? So yeah, this I mean, you know, this we opened I mean we didn't we weren't on a on a world with wind expansion program or anything like that. I mean, it was all very organic and very sort of, you know, um self-funded and so we when we opened this in 2008, uh we already had Cinema Club going for seven years. So, you know, we took our time. Um obviously. Um I think it must have been 2006 or something I I I happened to find myself I don't know how but I have ended up answering the phone and um at reception and there was on the other end was a lady who said well you know well, do you have a dress code I mean do you welcome children or is this a club do I need to be a member and, um All, all kinds of things and i i didn't even know i i didn't even know at the point whether i had a view on whether people should come in jeans or not no i didn't have a view i just wanted anybody and everybody to come at the time we were spending about 50000 pounds a year on pr and you know we were uh, serving about 60000 people a year which was a great number but we still had capacity we wanted to grow the business more and i was thinking well who's putting up all these barriers and you know what's going on here So I thought about it and I think uh, I think the clue was in the name. I mean it was the Cinnamon Club. Uh it was in the old Westminster Library. It is uh the kind of place that people expect to actually wear have to have to wear a tie or you know have a dress code and no kids and no pets and what have you. Um so we thought no look we we want to do this and we want to take this quiz into a much wider audience and therefore the idea of Cinnamon Kitchen was born because it you know by by just the term kitchen itself is a lot more about sharing it's a lot more about um interaction about theater about you know um just family, breaking down barriers as well Correct. you were saying but exactly. back in my thinking yeah. nana thinking your mom thinking you know, yeah. cooking in the kitchen yeah exactly so you know it it does break down barriers in in much more effective and that's how cinema kitchen was born and and you know this site came up which uh, um 
it's very fortunate because um, and this used to be the old spice warehouses of the East India Company. So how oh, what a great fitting location, amazing, you know. It's all it's all gone all right. It's all That's falling all into place, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I need a weekend with it. And it's like you know what I mean. It's all falling into place, lovely. But sometimes it happens like that. Yeah. Sometimes the real things you make mistakes, you do that, but fate kind of carries you through sometimes yeah. as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Nice. Um, so let's let's get into um, some of the like, the initiatives you have for your your whole team. Hmm. You do a lot of um, apprenticeship schemes, That's and you right. try to really instill um, that education side of it, yeah. which is you know obviously an important thing. You do want to talk to us a little bit about yeah. some of those? See, part of the reason why uh, we went from one restaurant to two, two or three, whatever. Uh, was because we wanted there to be enough opportunities for people to grow, people that had stayed. I've been incredibly fortunate. Uh, I mean, an average chef stays about seven to eight years with me. Uh, all my head chefs are grown, homegrown. They're all say, they've been with me 15, 17, 12 years, you know. Um, so we have this ethos where we always look within first in terms of if you have an opportunity to grow the company, we'll always look, see if you have somebody, they want it, whatever. So it, the growth is as much um, as much as it is a business growth. It is also about creating opportunities and platforms for people to be able to grow into. Um, so that's one important aspect. The other important aspect is that um, even if I didn't think I needed it, or you know, I'm happy with what I'm doing. This is a great restaurant. It's a great business. It pays the bills, and you know, I may not want it, but there might be other people who may have ambitions. And, you know, if I, if I don't acknowledge that and I don't create enough opportunities for it, then obviously people are right in, you know, moving on and looking for other opportunities. So that's the other thing. And then, you know, as, as things evolve, we realize that, you know, it, there, is, um, there is a role for us all to play in terms of we get to a point where we get to by doing one person's job. You know, we, I know really well how to cook on a tandoor and I can make breads like no one else can. And it's amazing. But beyond the point to go to go further, we need the skills to be able to teach. And how do you teach if you have no one new in your kitchen? So you know, there you need younger people to be coming in. And I mean, it's not the easiest lifestyle. But although I've seen the whole uh, career kind of um, come a long way since the time we started, we realized we realized quite earlier on that you know it wasn't enough to say to people, "Oh, in my time, you used to work," you know, from seven in the morning to one in the morning, whatever. Six days a week. We never had a break, and da da da. It's fine for you, chef, but that's not what I'm wired to do. I'm not going to do that. And I think that's fine. You know, it's just about understanding that different people have different needs and different expectations. Um, so, acknowledging that and making sure that we are open, accessible, sharing knowledge, and creating opportunities for people to grow, and that needn't necessarily. We, we quickly realize that you know you. Um, this kind of cooking or this kind of expression was not linked to genes or, you know, you didn't have to be born of an Indian mother's womb to be able to cook Indian food. I could teach you if I was good enough and knew how to teach. The question then became, you know, um, I can cook, but can I teach? And so that kind of brought to us a different kind of opportunity. So a lot of our chefs, it's very important for them to be able to, A, want to teach and be able to teach people. So we we don't we can't say well you know the the you know the this Romanian guy or this whatever Czech uh, kitchkomi is the reason why my sauce doesn't taste <laughs> as good as it should because you know so 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 we we learned how to teach and along the way we kind of came up with and we just made it up as we went along 
when we wanted our um, younger chefs to kind of grow into sous chefs or um, um, head chefs, we realized that we had to teach them all the management side that comes with it, you know, managing your ordering, your food costs. And, uh, so we devised a sous chef training program, um, so 18 months. And we put all, you know, people who are interested and who have been in a mark to grow, they go on to that. So all the chef de parties become sous chefs or head chefs, and <laughs> you need chef de parties. So we had a chef de party training program. But in between all of that, we also, um, we realized about 10 years ago that, you know, skill shortage was not going to go away. It was, there wasn't a, um, an easy fix to this. And you had to just open your doors much earlier on. And, and it, it has been a frustrating process, you know, trying to attract uh, young apprentices and, and keep them motivated and keep them growing and, you know, wanting to learn and so on and so forth. But I mean, and, and the, I think that the easier um, line to take is that, oh, you know, young people don't want to work or, you know, there's not enough interest and so on and so forth. But um, I, in saying that, I once realized that I had put about 40 people through the apprenticeship training program uh, over a period of four years. And that wasn't impressive. What was impressive was that 13 of them were in full-time employment with us. And I thought, that's like a whole kitchen out of just apprentices. That was amazing. So that's really good. I mean, it's a brilliant, you know, return on, on the time and the effort that you put into training. I mean, at the end of the day, it does come down to the fact that if we are, we are chefs, we have, you know, uh, if we want other people to take on this way of life and we are advocates of that, then we've got to make sure that we are able to, we are willing to, Teach them and teach and them. And, put know. as much effort into them as they're because they well they put into the kitchen, your Correct. business. You know Correct. what I mean? The lifestyle. Correct. Because it's a choice that people have, and and you know we are faced with a lot of people, young people or old people. I think are faced with so much more choice than people our generation had. So if we really want this way of life to be preserved, i.e., you know people be able to go to restaurants and have a good meal and celebrate a good occasion. It's just, you know, money can't buy experiences. If you want this way of life to be preserved, then, you know, we all have a responsibility. Absolutely. And some of that kind of, the negative side comes from the TV. You know, people, <laughs> people see... Jeopardy, you mean. <laughs> yeah, and then, the, you know, their expectation is something completely different to what the reality true, is. True, That is the reality check there. That is. So, I mean, how do you... Because that's quite frustrating, I suppose, from a, a restaurant perspective where you've got someone coming in, they want this rock star life, and, yeah. they're, and they're not prepared to work for it. But, I mean, you're able to turn that round if you're able to motivate them in the right way. And yeah. If you've got the schemes as well, I guess. If, you, if you've got these schemes in place, people know that they're going to learn. Do you know right. what I mean? It's, if you just walk into the kitchen because you need the money, which happens to most chefs. A lot of, yeah, that happens a lot, but that doesn't have to be the only way it happens. That's the whole point, right? So um, you're right. I mean, you know, when, when you have schemes like that and you have enough examples and people who've, you know, uh, been to a, through that journey or a part of that journey and uh, you know they are really good examples for other people to follow then you know it's a, it isn't just a lucky chance actually you could do it this is a program this is how you get out to it I'll start tomorrow let's do it me and Ben <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's because yeah, we're getting we've, we've got nearly an hour now and I could go on for longer <laughs> but I was going to say what's the next step for the cinnamon group and you is it more, because obviously you do more TV, you've got books, but what's the thing that kind of makes you happy of all them? Well, you know, I think um, the bit that makes me happy is um, still cooking. You know? the stove. Yeah, it's the stove. It's, uh, it's 
what happens when you go and spend you know sort of uh, i still try and spend two days a week in the kitchens it can be any of the kitchens it doesn't you know have to be the same kitchen it, there isn't a science to it and often i find that the stuff that i end up cooking never really goes in front of the guest but that's fine too because most often i find that i'm i end up cooking either for the teams or you know um, uh, for the chefs and new ideas and new stuff. ideas and things and we you know uh, some of it may end up on the menus at some point but i mean a lot of it doesn't and it doesn't bother me because um what we're doing with the teams and the chefs is probably almost as important as what we can you know do cooking a meal for a table of two uh, that is celebrating a special occasion so it's all the same it doesn't matter but yeah th- you know two days a week of that um that's pretty good um you know long may it continue um but and i and i i'm not sure i'm not entirely sure whether um, you know the uh the conventional route for expansion i you know for people to have you know five restaurants 10 restaurants 15 20 500 i'm not sure whether the world needs another 300 restaurants of a particular type uh but if it's a journey that you're on and it's a story that you're telling um it can be a different region it could be a different influence it could be a different cooking style and as long as you can carry on learning and expressing that in ways that makes you happy and your customers want to come back I think you know it's a it's a good place to be. It sounds like there's still lots of challenges there that you could just get stuck into. Oh yeah yeah yeah. All <laughs> all the time. I don't think um, any of us are short of challenges business or otherwise. Um not not in the environment that we live in. Wedding mm. chef. So I think bring them prawns back. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> we should just just put on the on the uh, cinnamon the weddings. <laughs> anyway, um yeah, yeah, I think we'll if we do a little quick fire round with you if that's sure. all right. Right, so we're just going to ask you very simple questions and whatever comes to your mind. Sure. You just Try shoot. Try my best. So what's the top 3 foods you couldn't live without? Aha. Uh-huh. So, I think one of them I've already mentioned to you, um the king prawns. I just love that. I mean, couldn't live without um but I'd I'd love that. Um the other favorite favorite thing probably is the old Delhi style butter chicken. I can have it any time of the day or night. and if i had to pick a third it's probably going to be um this masala omelet on a toasted tea cake that i have make myself every time i go back home after a long day's work and not not having eaten anything all day so god i love a toasted tea cake you just reminded me of my up north the toasted tea cake oh. uh, fill that in with a masala omelet i tell you mate you know it's just <laughs> there you go there you go what's uh, your favorite food guilty pleasure ah uh, it used to be jammy dodgers you know <laughs> that, that's perfect answer. let's leave it there man. i mean a jammy dodger Guys, they've got worse they've got smaller yeah, they don't care what they say they've yeah got, i think there's like not enough wa- jam in them no like bloody wagon wheels in 1995 look at them now which what was um one of your biggest kitchen disasters uh my biggest kitchen disaster has got to be um Uh, you know very earlier on at the cinema club I, i was on this mission to use as many different kinds of fish and seafood as one can find and i think in the first two years i ended up using 76 different kinds of fish and seafood because i i you know we never had access to any of that um, uh, you know that variety back in india um so i wanted to use everything that was available on the british isles in the you know from a fish point of view and i ended up putting skate on the menu i had never cooked with skate, skate before so um i didn't know you know what happened if it was three days old and that there was a breakdown of ammonia whatever i 
checked the I checked the fish. I checked skate uh, at about twelve, you know, midday. Uh, that lunch service, it was fine, um, absolutely fine. At about five, quarter past one, somebody brought back a plate of uh, the skate and said, "Look, you know, um, the guest is complaining. It smells of bleach, um, uh, ammonia." I said, "Oh, that can't be possible." I checked it. Yes, it was a very strong uh, bleach smell on it. So something might be wrong. I'll do another portion. I'll do something else. And then within five minutes, there are about 10 or 12 portions of skate that came back. I mean, my worst lunch service ever, I tell you. Sweating. <laughs> the gills. Sweating. Bleachy skate. That's a good answer. Three bits of kit you can't live without in the kitchen. Ah, okay. Uh, of course, um, I'll, I'll start with the most unusual one. Mine is a uh, mortar and pestle. I have a small brass mortar and pestle that I, I just couldn't do. Any, I, I'll go anywhere and, you know, I, I must have it with me. Um I, the second would be a knife that everybody needs. Is everybody has a knife that they like to use, um, a multi-purpose one, um, pretty good. Um, and I, the third thing probably would be salt. I like, you know, I like to have salt. I mean, I I can't imagine a day when. I think it's really bad omen if you run out of salt either in your kitchen or in your home. So. It's a, at home, <laughs> late at night, and it's just like, and then you think about it, it's like when you have eggs or something with no salt and pepper on them, and you're just like, oh, can't have it. No. You have to have three things, those three. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So I think I know what the answer is going to be to this one, but we'll put it to the test. If you had to eat the same meal every day, what would it be? Hmm. It is probably the tea cake and omelette. I have pretty much had it. You know, most nights, wow. <laughs> most nights, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, um, and if you could cook one meal for anybody, who would it be? Um, I I have done it, and I, I'll probably still pick that. Um, I'd cook the Hyderabadi lamb biryani for my mum. You know, um, I you know you would have gathered for a lot of the things that I say and a lot of the influences that I have on my food, um, my mum's cooking, and a lot of it, most of it, I have to say, a good part of it went uh, completely unacknowledged and, and never, and you know, totally thankless. Um, because for years, people would ask me, "How did you get into food?" And I kind of very cruelly, will, you know, sort of just to get a good laugh, cheap laugh, I'd say, "Oh, because my mum was a terrible cook," and that's so, so not true. Um, anyway, well. She she was here once and I I um, I cooked a biryani for her and I'd forgotten everything about it. So one day when she was back, we we were all going around asking, "What's the best thing you've eaten? What's the best thing you've eaten?" And um, so we asked her, "What's the best thing you've ever eaten in your life?" And she thought about it and she was very quiet. She's mm, five or ten minutes and later she said, "You know what? You asked. I think the best thing I've ever eaten was that lamb biryani you cooked when I was here last time." And I said, "Oh, really?" Wow, mega. that would have been a moment. So yeah, that I I would do anything to replicate that moment. Actually, yeah. 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 You should have said, "Oh, wait till you try the skate." <laughs> Thank you very much, mate. Thank My you very pleasure. much. Brilliant. Cheers. My pleasure. Thank you. So that was Mr. Vivek Singh of Cinnamon Club, Cinnamon Kitchen, Cinnamon Bazaar, and other cinnamon things. What a lovely guy. He even took my number and he's given recommendations for different places to go in India. So I am absolutely over the moon. Really nice to look back at his youth. Really, really nice to look back at kind of well, what made him tick when he was younger. And like the fact that we said when he opened his mouth and yawned, he'd get a prawn put in it, which made me giggle. And I'm absolutely starving. Thank you so much for listening to Yes Chef. Um, we will see you next week. Love you. Bye-bye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 